Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the top teams in the Western Conference, the Minnesota Timberwolves. So I'm here today with Tyler Metcalf. And Tyler, how are you? I'm good, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for taking time. Let's get started by reviewing the offseason, which for some teams is a little bit of a quiet exercise, but for the Timberwolves, it certainly isn't. And let's start with the biggest move of a very busy offseason for the Minnesota Timberwolves, the Jimmy Butler trade. Now, the Jimmy Butler trade was met with quite a lot of applause on the Timberwolves side at the time that it happened. And over the first couple weeks of the season, there's been a little bit of a pushback on that because of how good Lowry Markkinen has been. But what are your thoughts overall on how the Jimmy Butler trade has looked for this Timberwolves team so far? I mean, I think it was definitely the right decision to make whenever you get the chance to trade for, you know, a top 15, top 20 player in the league, you kind of got to take it. And while Markkinen has, you know, been been playing pretty well early this season, um, I, I'd still take Jimmy Butler over him any day. He adds a sense of maturity and leadership to that team that they haven't had in a long time. The thing about the Jimmy Butler trade that I thought was particularly fascinating is that the biggest piece in that trade was Zach Levine the biggest piece going back to Chicago, I should say. And the thing about Levine is that he is an incredibly talented scorer who's become more efficient since his rookie campaign when he wasn't all that great on the efficiency front. And he's developed a little bit better of a handle than he had as a rookie, which you might attribute to the time that he spent playing point guard in Minnesota. But I just don't think Levine was as valuable for a Timberwolves team with Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins as Levine might be for a Chicago team who's basically only scorer at the moment is their rookie Markkanen. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, he just kind of seemed to be like an awkward fit. Um, didn't really fit into the the two or the one. I mean, a lot of his numbers kind of came in garbage time or uh, when you know when Towns and Wiggins weren't on the floor. And just didn't seem like he really had an overall fit or identity um, with this team. And I think the move, while he did keep, you know, keep improving, um, you know, up until his injury, which is really unfortunate. um, I think the fit in Chicago will definitely be better for him um, and let him really take over that scoring role and uh, just kind of take over um, that team as one of the, their main offensive options once he comes back. He'll also get to have the ball in his hands a lot more in Chicago than he did in Minnesota. And while him having the ball in his hands a lot wasn't always the greatest thing for the Timberwolves, I think it'll definitely be helpful in Chicago where he will be relied upon on the offensive end. Whereas in Minnesota, basically from day one, he was at best a second option. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And he'll, or he always showed that he never had any issue um, taking control of the offense and taking, you know, the shots late in games, but with Towns and Wiggins, um, you know, the team is the team was set up for them to take those shots, for them to be in those roles down the stretch. Um, and he was just kind of, you know, cast off to the side as a third, sometimes even fourth option, and just didn't really seem to fit well with this team. And in Chicago, he'll be able to really take over that dominant role, handle the ball, um, and really be able to initiate the offense. So we'll get to Justin Patton in a little bit, but the last piece of that trade, other than Patton, was Chris Dunn going to the Chicago Bulls. And on the one hand, 
giving up on a fifth overall pick, especially at point guard, is a difficult decision, certainly after the first year. But on the other hand, Dunn really, really deeply struggled on offense during his rookie year with the Timberwolves. And so far in Chicago, he's looked pretty similar. He's been an excellent defensive player after being a pretty solid defensive player for the Timberwolves, especially for a rookie point guard. But Dunn is already 23, and when you can trade the seventh pick, Chris Dunn, and an injured Zach Levine for Jimmy Butler, I mean, you have to do that every time, even without the 16th overall pick going back the other way. Yeah, and the the Chris Dunn experiment just really didn't work at all. Um, I know the coaching staff when they drafted him was really excited about him. Everyone up here was really excited about him. You know, we're, the, the idea was that we're going to have a mature rookie because he was, you know, a senior um, coming into the draft uh, to be able to help take over the team and manage the offense while being um, a really good defensive player. But he was just so bad on offense that he couldn't even, you know, see the floor at times. Moving on from him, I, I don't think was really that tough because at his age, I, I feel like he's kind of shown all that he'll be. And I don't think his ceiling is much higher than where he currently is. So moving on from the point guard discussion centered around Chris Dunn, let's talk about the other big point guard moves of the offseason for the Timberwolves. They traded Ricky Rubio to the Utah Jazz for a first round pick. And then they signed Jeff Teague to a pretty pricey new contract. And the way that I looked at that was sort of a fit issue with Rubio that Thibodeau must have thought would be less of an issue with Teague. But how has that fit with Jeff Teague looked so far to start the season? And he's definitely helped their offense out. He's given them another facet to it that Rubio couldn't. Uh, he, he he helps space the floor. He's much better in the pick and roll game, uh, working with Towns. But on defense, it's pretty bad. Um, you know, his one-on-one defense is, I would say, probably about league average. But um, whenever teams, you know, put him in motion and run him off his screens, he he often loses his man. Um, if you go back and look at that Golden State Warriors game, um, and he was he was horrible on defense, and it resulted in either Clay or Steph, um, you know, just ending up with wide open shots uh, because he was he either, he either lost them or wasn't able to fight through the picks. But on offense, he has really helped take them to another level, making them more dynamic, helping to space the floor. He's not a great three-point shooter, but um, he's definitely much better and more reliable than Rubio and um, isn't quite as good of a passer as Rubio was, is because I mean, Rubio's one of the best in the league, but he helps work the pick and roll really well with Towns um, and is able to get to the rim really well. The way that I saw the Teague situation was just, and we already sort of went through this, but the defense was going to be something that Thibodeau was going to have to sacrifice in return for getting a much better offensive fit in Teague, which honestly is a decision that I wouldn't have expected Thibodeau to make trading defense for offense and it's a decision that he explicitly went against with his other big signing of the offseason when he inked Taj Gibson to a new deal now Gibson of course had history with Thibodeau in Chicago and given the Butler trade and just how Thibodeau has tended to work generally 
that seems to have certainly played a role in why Taj Gibson is now a member of the Timberwolves. But what are your thoughts on Gibson's fit so far for this Timberwolves squad? When I saw they first signed him, I was really excited. I thought it was a great fit. I thought he would really kind of help toughen up uh, Carl Anthony Towns, um, especially on the defensive end, and help him really buy into uh, Tibbs' system. And, but once I saw that it was two years, $28 million, I thought they vastly overpaid for him. I would have liked to see you know, that money get spread out with a, helping their bench a little more. Um, I mean, Gibson's been good, not great. He's... He's one of Thibodeau's former guys, but I, I just think they they vastly overpaid for him. And he's only averaging like 10 points a game and 7.8 rebounds, which is his career high so far. Um, but I don't think for how much they spent on him, he's having um, necessarily the impact that that he should be. All right, so let's now circle back to the draft so we can talk about the final piece in the Jimmy Butler trade. The Timberwolves selected, I guess via the Chicago Bulls, but selected Justin Patton with the 16th overall pick. And he broke his foot in preseason, hasn't played an NBA minute yet. But I was surprised that the Timberwolves went for Patton with that 16th overall pick, given that they already have a bunch of big men who can't really stretch the floor. But what were your thoughts on the decision to go with Patton 16th overall? Yeah, I had a similar thought process. I was pretty surprised. Um, and coming into the draft, Patton had shown some promise um, in college, but was definitely viewed as a very raw prospect who was going to you know, take a lot of time to develop. And they already have four bigs with Towns, Gibson, uh, Dang, and Belly getting most of the minutes. So I, I just didn't really get the pick. Um, it And it is pretty clear that he wouldn't get any legitimate playing time right away. Um, and if they wanted to go with, you know, one of the, with a big man, I would have liked to see them go with John Collins, who's looking really good for Atlanta right now, or even Jordan Bell. I mean, that, that would have been a pretty massive reach at that point. But those are, you know, two guys who are having immediate impacts on their teams, but I, I just I thought it was a reach. I didn't get the fit, um, and it's a guy who's going to take a lot of patience and time to work with and develop on actually developing a real NBA ready game. The thing that always confuses me when people talk about drafting best player available as opposed to drafting for a fit is that if someone isn't going to get the necessary minutes to be able to develop into a solid NBA player, it doesn't really matter how good they are. I mean, that matters granted at the top of the draft. Taking Joel Embiid when you already have two other centers is probably still going to work out pretty well for you. But when you're talking about right after the lottery, sort of middle of the first round, a lot of the guys that turn out well in that range, say Kawhi Leonard, for example, are guys that were drafted into a team and a system that fit them really well so that they could grow their NBA game and get NBA minutes. But with Patton, even when he does get healthy, I'm just not sure if he's ever going to be able to find the playing time that he needs to develop into the kind of player that he could be at his peak. And maybe that means that Minnesota will look to trade him further on down the line, or maybe it means that they'll look to trade one of their other big men if possible, other than Towns, obviously. But 
I'm just worried that Patton's not going to get the developmental minutes he needs, even if he might have been, at least according to the Timberwolves front office, the best available player at that 16th pick. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. The only way I see him really getting any legitimate minutes once he's healthy is is if they move uh, Gorgie Jang out. And even then, and this team is looking to win now, and they're you know really for the first time in franchise history actually making moves and trades and signing free agents um, that that follow that ideology and starting or giving a uh, a rookie with who is needs a lot of time to develop and is just very raw doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So I I don't see how or when he really is going to be able to get those those minutes to help him develop that NBA game and uh, turn into a legitimate NBA rotation player. All right, let's move from the off-season overview into talking about the actual season itself. And I want to start just by going through some of the early games for the Timberwolves. The season's still young on the one hand, but on the other hand, the Timberwolves at 10 and 7 have had a much better start than they've had in quite a while, honestly, even after two tough losses in their most recent games. But they're still 27th in defensive rating, at least according to basketball reference. And it just surprises me that a Tom Thibodeau-led team is not just offensively focused, but as specifically offensively focused as this Timberwolves team has been. Yeah, I mean, it's... Their their team defense has just been appalling. Their their communication is bad. There are multiple instances where you see guys rotating onto the same player or both, um, you know, sagging to the guy who rolls to the rim and leaving the shooter wide open. Um, the, so and the communication as a whole has been really bad. Um, it, as individual defenders, they're not, you know. I would say they're probably about league average. Jimmy Butler's obviously a good defender. Um, Wiggins, when he's going one-on-one and wants to, he can be a good defender. Towns is still a little iffy against some of the stronger guys. Uh, You can see him get uh, bodied up pretty well in in the post. But individually, they can hold their own. But it's when they get put into those motion offenses and get runoff screens that – that they just don't communicate or they don't get the system. They don't understand when they're supposed to switch. And it often leaves guys either wide open for threes or just easy layups at the basket. And that's the really shocking part to me is you'd think that if Tom Thibodeau would be able to do anything, it would be to cobble a bunch of players who have athletic limitations or other issues that make them struggle in one-on-one defense and mold them into a team that defends well as a unit, yet it seems like the opposite is the case. Yeah, and that's the whole point of really kind of bringing Tibbs in and then bringing in Taj and Jimmy was to help further install his, you know, legendary defense. Um, He's acclaimed as being the best, one of, if not the best defensive coach in the NBA, but yet this is the second year in a row that they've had you know, one of the league's worst overall defenses. Um, and I, I I don't know when that, if, when or if that switch is going to flip and they're really going to start playing that, that patented Tibbs defense. So I wanted to talk 
quickly about the big man rotation for this team. And something that has interested me, even though it hasn't been the case, given that the starting lineup has been basically unchanged the entire season, is do you think that this is the best possible starting lineup for this Timberwolves team? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was looking at at the lineups and how how frequently you know they're the different five man rotations played together and their certain lineup has played 354 minutes together the next highest five man combination is just 59 minutes so i mean there isn't a whole lot of sample size with other guys meshing but i feel like this is the way you got to go and these are the guys that you paid for these are the guys that you traded for so and i mean i i think they're obviously the most talented on the team so it's just a matter of getting them to gel and get that chemistry um, really working. But I, they're, they don't have a whole lot of depth on on their bench, so there's not much else to go to when it comes to the starting lineup. The one thought that I had that might be at least worth looking at would be putting Bielica in the starting lineup. And granted, he's done really well in a small minutes role, and maybe that wouldn't scale well to a starting role. But I feel like his spacing might help this team more than Taj Gibson's defense, just because given that they're a pretty bad defensive team at the moment as it is, I'm not sure how much Taj Gibson is helping in that regard. And maybe just giving up on the defensive side a little bit and going all offense with Bielica in the starting crew could help the team out. And on the other hand, Gibson's best role is as a defensive piece. And ultimately, you're going to be more useful as a defensive piece if you're in the starting lineup playing defense against the starters as opposed to playing defense against the bench. But then you run into the other issue of just how bad the bench defense has been for the Timberwolves team. Maybe Gibson could help pick that up. And maybe if he was coming off the bench, he could spend more time as a small ball five rather than playing power forward. Like he has virtually the entire season. Yeah. Um, and I, that's one of the things I was thinking about with belly too, is if he's one of those guys that just really thrives and, you know, that 15 minutes a game, which he's currently getting, or if he can, like, if he's given more, you know, 20 to 25 minutes a game, if he can, you know, sustain that, that efficiency. I mean, he's shooting 52% from three on two and a half attempts. Um, I mean, he's been playing really well. And when Towns and him are on the court together, their defensive rating is actually better than when Towns and Gibson are on the court. Um, so I, I I don't know if that's just something where Towns is like, where, where his mentality is more so that he's just like, really the only legitimate big man so he has to try harder but i i think it would definitely be something you know at least worth trying and then being able to pair gibson and dang off the bench who actually have the best um, defensive rating of the big men pairing but my biggest concern with it is that if belly is just one of those guys who thrives in the 15 minutes a game range and then once you bump up his minutes um it just doesn't convert well all right let's move from the big man rotation into the guard rotation and you talked about this a little bit earlier but the guard and wing rotation i think is really where the timberwolves lack of depth shows up i mean on the one hand they have jamal crawford perennial six man of the year candidate coming off the bench but 
On the other hand, he's 37 years old and clearly on the downswing of his career, really the downswing of the downswing of his career, because sometimes it feels like Jamal Crawford could play forever. But I guess I'm surprised a little bit that Tyus Jones is playing as few minutes as he is, given that he's really the only other point guard on the team besides Jeff Teague. What are your thoughts on that rotation, guards specifically, but wings and guards in general? Yeah, I, I really like what Tyus has been doing this year. Um, I mean, he's not going to win you a game, but he's not going to lose it for you. I think he's just a really solid backup point guard that can come in and you know give you good, solid minutes. Um, Crawford, I mean, he's a nice player. He's the same player that he's always been, which is a ball-dominant guy who takes – a lot of shots. Um, so I, I, I would have liked to see them add a little more, more diversity to their backcourt um, with like more of a defensive minded guy to contrast with Teague. And I just, their, their wing depth is just, I think it's just really, really bad. Um, including, you know, Shabazz Muhammad, who has just been awful this year um, after coming back on the minimum. Um, but I, it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They they have a lot of the same type of guys who are ball-dominant ISO guys who don't play a whole lot of defense. Now, Shabazz Muhammad certainly made an interesting choice in the offseason with his push for a much larger contract that ended up turning into him taking the qualifying offer. And I'm not sure if I should call him Boz yet if he's made that official name change. He started the two games that Jimmy Butler missed, so also the only two games that haven't been started by that starting lineup. But he's only averaging 13 minutes a game, and he's been shooting really badly out of the gates, but he's at least someone who can create shots for himself that usually go in at a more efficient rate than they have been this season. What are your thoughts on what you've seen from Shabazz so far this year? I, I think he's been really bad. I, he has an offensive rating of 98, a defensive rating of 113, and, and he's shooting 12.5% from three this year. Um, it took him 14 games to before he, he made his first three-pointer. Um, I, think, I think he's similar to Crawford, but obviously a much worse shooter where he's a ball-dominant guy, and he's, he's good at cutting and slashing and, and finishing at the rim. Um, a lot of the times he'll, he'll get a decent amount of offensive putbacks and create second chance points. But I think overall, I, I don't think he really adds anything to this team um, besides poor shot selection and, you know, below average defense. All right, let's move into talking about your most recent article for hashtag basketball.com, which is a bit unfortunate in the wake of their two recent losses, but after being one of the worst, if not the worst, clutch teams in basketball over the past few seasons, the Timberwolves have actually been pretty good in that regard so far this year. So why don't you just walk us through a bit of the Timberwolves clutch stats from this year where they've been pretty impressive in that regard versus last year when, let's just say, they weren't as impressive. Yeah, so this would have looked much more impressive last week, right after the article came out. But and last year they were that they they could not win a close game to save their life. Uh, they were 
um, in clutch situations, which the NBA defines as five minutes remaining in a five-point game. And they were 15-30, and 30, which was 28th in the league. Their offensive rating was 97.3, which was also 28th in the league. And they were barely getting to the free throw line. Um, their free throw rate was only 42.6%. And they're only making 71.9% of those free throws. So, you know, when they were had the opportunity to close out games, you know, they're missing out on free points and letting other teams back into it um, without having the clock run. So they weren't able to hit shots. They weren't able to make free throws. Um, just last year, it was really bad. And this year, it's been completely different. Um, at the time of the article coming out, they were 5-1. and one in these situations they're they've dropped two games now though so and they're currently five and three um but they're getting to the line they're making their free throws um their free throw percentage is 89.3 percent towards the end of games and i think butler's been a huge huge addition um to their ability to close out games he has that maturity he has that experience and he has that poise where he's just not really phased. Um, and as, as we saw in the Detroit game last night, he had, he hit two out of three, um, and almost made his third, but Reggie Jackson had the savvy move of interrupting his rhythm there. Um, but Butler's had a true shooting percentage of almost 61% and over half of his points are coming from the free throw line. And I think he's also helped Wiggins a lot who is one of the best in the league, I think, at getting to the hoop. And his ability to do so is resulting in him, you know, finishing a lot of easy baskets and also drawing fouls and getting to the line where he's recording 50% of his points uh, in the paint and 29.2% of his points um, at the free throw line. So I think their ability to get to the rim, make easy baskets, and then knock down their free throws has really helped them win these close games and get out to a much better start this year than they had last year. One of the hallmarks of the Timberwolves, basically since the Kevin Garnett era, was consistently underperforming their point differential. And last year, their expected win-loss was 38-44, given their point differential. They finished 31-51. and Year before, expected win-loss 31-51. They finished 29-53. Year before, expected win-loss 19-63. They finished 16-66. That was the year they ended up getting Carl Anthony Towns. And the year before that, which was the really painful one, the last Kevin Love season, their expected win-loss, given their point differential, was 48-34, and which would have made them a clear playoff team. And instead, they finished the year 40 and 42 and missed out on the playoffs. Now, this season is still young, but they're currently 10 and 7 with an expected win loss given their point differential of 8 and 9. So, for the first time in quite a while, they're actually not only falling way short of their point differential, but outperforming it by a pretty significant margin given these 17 game sample size. Yeah, it's it's really good to see, and I I I think that's where Jimmy Butler has made his biggest impact on the team. He he just provides a sense of calm and maturity 
uh, especially to their offense. And you can see them run their sets, um, get get good shots off, and not and not force the issue late in games. Last year, a lot it would be Wiggins ISO and pull up mid range that would be contested. And this year, you're seeing a lot a lot more um, open looks and easier baskets at the rim. And a lot of that is coming from Jimmy Butler creating and making the right decision down the stretch. Um, it also helps that they have three guys who are very good isolation players in Wiggins, Towns, and Butler. And a lot of the times late in games, that's what the offensive sets you know, fall to, where it's just clear out and let a guy work. And, and all three of those guys are some of the best at getting to the rim or, or creating their own shot. I mean, when you have Carl Anthony Towns on your squad, it's funny because he's, you know, still so young, but I think that in terms of just offensive skill sets, it's harder to stop Cat on the offensive end than pretty much any big man in the league in terms of isolation. I mean, Cat can score from beyond the three-point arc. He can obviously score in and around the rim. He's an excellent free throw shooter, period, not just for a big man. And when you're getting down to the end of the game and you've got Andrew Wiggins, who basically his single greatest skill is his ability to score in isolation, and you've got Jimmy Butler, who was incredibly effective in that regard with the Bulls last year, hasn't been as much so this year, but still a kind of player that can do that. Those are the second and third options. And when you've got that much offensive firepower, it is difficult to try and shut them down in clutch situations. And more so even than last year when they had a younger Towns and a younger Wiggins. Yeah. And they have the opportunity to run a set, a set play. And if it, you know, if nothing comes from it right away, they're able to quickly move out of it and basically just go into isolation with either Wiggins, who's really been showing off his spin move a lot this year, um, or feeding it to Towns in the post, who will either, you know, face up or hit hit a turnaround or an up and under. Um, his just sense of balance and um, awareness for where he is on the floor is really incredible um, when you watch just the variety of ways that he's able to score. The thing about Wiggins that has been a bit troubling is that his three-point percentage this year is just a hair above 30%, 30.4% at the moment. It was 31% his rookie year. It was 30% his sophomore year. And it looked like he was turning the corner last season when he shot 35.6% from deep, but also attempted more threes per game than in either of his sophomore or rookie seasons and almost attempted more threes per game than he did in his sophomore and rookie years combined. This year, he's upped his three-point attempt rate yet again, but he just hasn't been able to hit them. Do you think that's sort of a small sample size thing where he'll probably end the season somewhere in the 33 to 35% range? Or do you think it's more likely that last year was an outlier and he's just regressing back to his shooting from deep that he had his first two years in the league. I think he'll probably be right around that 30 to 33%. Um, I mean, his percent was a little higher last year because he just got out to that unbelievable start from three last year where he was leading the league in three-point percentage for a good amount of the first half of the season. And then right around the 
midway mark of last year, we saw that tail off and kind of regressed to the mean. Um, I, I, I think he'll be kind of similar to DeMar DeRozan maybe, um, but hopefully develop a little more of his shot from outside. Um, and he's great at getting to the rim. Um, his mid-range game is really solid, but just his three-point selection even um, just doesn't look to be there right now. Um, and a lot of that is, I, I think, spawns from um, their poor offensive looks a lot of the times where they'll some of their offensive possessions uh, result in just one guy bringing it up and pulling up from three right away and no passes being made. And when you watch a game, he'll have, you know, two, two, three, four of those a game. Um, so if he can eliminate those and focus more on getting quality looks instead of quantity, I, I could see his percentage going up. But if he keeps forcing these contested threes that are just kind of out of the rhythm of the game, I, I, I imagine that he'll continue to be down around that 30, 31, 32% range. All right, let's move on and talk about the future for the Timberwolves, which is always a fun topic when you're talking about this particular Timberwolves team. And I wanted to start by talking about the very near-term future, as in this season. So at the time that we're speaking, the Timberwolves are tied for fourth in the Western Conference, and so thus they would be in the tiebreaker for home court advantage. What do you think their chances are of finishing this season in one of those top four seeds in the Western Conference and getting home court advantage, at least in the first round? I don't think it's great. I mean, the top three will be Houston, Golden State, and San Antonio, especially once they get Kawhi back. Um, and OKC hasn't had a great start to the year, but they're still working in, you know, two superstars with huge egos into their team. Um, so I, I, they'll only get better. Um, and then Portland's been playing really well. And Damian Lillard hasn't been having a great season, but CJ McCollum's been playing out of his mind recently. Um, so I, I, I could see them up there, maybe not quite as high, more down around six or seven. And then Denver, Denver started to turn it around here after their poor start. But Millsap was just announced being out indefinitely with wrist surgery. So I mean, if you know these teams keep having injuries, I could see them up around, or up fighting for that four seed. But I, I think five or six is more likely, and there's honestly nothing wrong with that because the main focus for this team needs to just be getting to the playoffs after their league longest thirteen year drought. Now the divisions tend to really not matter at all anymore now that they've reseeded how the playoff structure works in terms of division winners not being guaranteed a top four seed. But I think for the Timberwolves, it's interesting to think about their chances to win this division because their chances of winning this division, I think, are directly tied to just how quickly the Thunder team can gel and start getting themselves back on track. And the early returns on that have not been that great. Yeah, and they've they've struggled, and Minnesota's had two really good wins against uh, the Thunder. But I, I just I struggle to imagine that 
with the amount of talent between Westbrook, George, and Anthony that they don't end up figuring it out at some point. Um, and, you know, really making that push for a top four seed. But I mean, they, their division is really tough this year. And I mean, between Portland, Denver, OKC, and Minnesota, they're all in the playoffs if the season ended today. Obviously, there are a lot of games left. But those are four teams that everyone really expected to make the playoffs this year. Yeah, when we did the division preview podcast before the season, one thing that really intrigued me was the possibility that all five of the Northwest division teams would make the playoffs. And it's not looking so great for the Jazz with Rudy Gobert out for extended time with injury. And the Nuggets might also struggle with Paul Millsap now expected to miss quite a significant amount of time. But it's interesting to even think about an entire division making the playoffs. And I think that alone speaks to just how talented these Northwest division teams are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am from Minnesota's point. This is really the first year that they've gone out and made moves to make a run, Um, you know, not just for the playoffs, but, you know, deep into the playoffs, but, you know, they're coming up against four teams are really good. And obviously for Utah losing Gobert, who's, I, I think the best rim protector in the league is devastating. Um, Millsap was really starting to gel in Denver um, and they were starting to play really well. So that's a huge loss for them, but it'll be interesting to see how much Jokic really take continues to take over um, and kind of be that point center. Um, and then I, I still just imagine that OKC's got to turn it around at some point, but I mean, as of now, Minnesota's, and if they keep playing the way they have been and closing out games and especially beating the teams that they're supposed to, um, like they have for the most part, uh, I, I could definitely see them winning the division. So let's move on from sort of the more regular season focused playoff talk and talk about the actual playoffs. And the question here is, what do you think the ceiling is for the Timberwolves in these Western Conference playoffs. And I think they could definitely win a first round series. I think they have a pretty decent shot, especially depending on the matchup. But I don't really think they would be able to beat the Houstons and Golden States and San Antonio's of the Western Conference. What are your thoughts on the Timberwolves playoff ceiling? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I could see them winning a first round matchup if they're that four or five seed. Um you know, six, seven, eight. I don't really see it. I, I, I don't see them knocking off Golden State, Houston, who's playing unbelievable basketball right now, or San Antonio, who Minnesota's gone one and one against so far without Kawhi even touching the floor. Um, but if they get in that four or five matchup against either Portland or Denver, um, you know, one of those teams, I, I, I could see them having a hard fought battle. Um, and having a really fun playoff series and potentially moving on. But I, I don't see them going really any farther than the second round. But I mean, after 13 years, really just making the playoffs is a huge accomplishment. All right. Before we wrap up here, I just wanted to do a quick thought experiment and think about what the Timberwolves team will look like, not in the near future of this season, but more in the longer term outlook of the next three to five years. And I pegged 2020 
The Timberwolves are definitely a team that's on the rise. I mean, their best player is 22 years old. Their second best player is a little bit older, but they also still have Andrew Wiggins, who hasn't even turned 23 yet. And I guess my thought on it is that the Timberwolves might be more of a matchup problem for the Warriors than any other team in the Western Conference in 2020, just because I can't think of anyone who is a worse matchup for Golden State than Carl Anthony Towns, with the possible exceptions of Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins. And I really doubt that both of them are still in New Orleans in 2020. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really exciting to think about Wiggins and Towns really being fully in their prime by that point um, and, you know, hopefully playing their best basketball and Jimmy Butler probably just hitting the end of his. Um, so I mean, if they can keep those three together um, and really continue to build that chemistry, I, I, I think they could be absolutely legitimate Western Conference contenders um and i mean depending on how salaries work out golden state could be coming apart by that point and uh you know well not necessarily coming apart but not being the same team that they are now i i think they'll need a a more um you know two-way player at point you know some some minor alterations here and there to really have a more well-rounded team but just the thought of all three of those guys either being you know right in the middle of their prime or in Butler's case, even at the end, I think is really exciting. Um, and it, and by then we'll really get to see what type of player Wiggins is going to be. Um, and same with Towns. And we're going to see if Wiggins is just continues to develop into, you know, some compared him to Kobe coming out and, or if he's just more of a Jason Richardson. Um, but hopefully him and towns are able to help or further develop on the defensive end and, you know, not be some of the worst defenders in the league. So if they can even just get to league average on that, I, I think they have an absolute shot at uh, not just a push at the Western conference finals, but even the NBA finals by the 2020. I think that the next two drafts for the Timberwolves will be absolutely crucial for Tom Thibodeau to knock out of the park because at the moment, the Timberwolves have two rising stars in Towns and Wiggins. They have a star in his prime, basically in Jimmy Butler. And granted the two-way point guard is something that they'll need to solve. But I think the biggest thing that they'll need to solve is depth. And if they can get some guys who can fill 10 to 15 minutes a game and be really solid bench players with their next two drafts, I think that might say even more about their projected 2020 record than improvements from Wiggins and Towns, because those are just going to be what they are. And it would be great if they could get to league average on defense, but the biggest issue that I see right now with this Timberwolves team is not in Towns and Wiggins, but really in their depth. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and they have, I mean, everyone on their bench is essentially a similar type of player, but, you know, obviously not as skilled as their starters. Um, they have no diversity in the type of players on their team right now. Um, 
and just being able to find those guys in the draft that are able to give them solid minutes and provide something different um, than what the starters are giving them, I think is absolutely essential. Um, my biggest fear is that the that is that ownership get gets impatient and starts trying to go all in too soon. Um, and this is really the first time that, that in franchise history, really, that they've made moves and spent money on free agents and traded for a star. Um, so my concern that is, you know, in a year or two, if, you know, they're not quite there, ownership starts demanding pieces being moved and, you know, guys being traded for that don't fit and disrupt what they've been building over the last couple of years. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? I, I don't think so. I think we covered it. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at tmetcalf11, and you can find his work on the hashtag basketball website. You can also find my work on the hashtag basketball website, and you can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any other feedback, feel free to reach out to me via Twitter or via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.